Resolute Square. My guest today on The Enemy's List is Tina Nguyen. She has a fantastic new book out called The MAGA Diaries, My Surreal Adventures in the Right Wing and How I Got Out. So I, I sympathize with you on the getting out of the right wing thing. Mine was a little more genteel because you came into sort of the whole right wing ecosystem right out of high school. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to write this book because I think it's really fun and insightful and valuable about how much gravitational force right-wing culture has on a lot of younger activists and writers and creators and political types. Oh my God. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Honestly, when you look at me, I don't look exactly like the type of person who would be into nationalist populism. (laughs) I'm, I'm a woman of color. My parents were Vietnamese refugees. I grew up in Boston and I went to an elite prep school on scholarship. Like I should not be an expert in this world by any means, but um, basically two things happened. First, my parents just did not know how American society worked at all. Like, sure, they got into Harvard, but they had that Asian mindset of like, oh, you get into the best schools, therefore you're set for life. And that like clearly didn't happen to them, especially as they learned at Milton what powerful people actually do. So for a hot moment, um, I go into this in the book a bit. For a hot moment, my dad gets sucked into pyramid schemes or things that kind of look like pyramids. My mom sort of just discovers that getting a PhD in education doesn't mean you actually get a good paying, a well-paying job in academia. (laughs) And eventually as I got older and my parents were like, Harvard, 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 get into Harvard, I started realizing that there were a lot more resources that my classmates had in getting ahead in life that I just didn't. Like they had connections, they had money for summer Mm -hmm. camps, they had tutors to look over their essays, famous people who could write them recommendation letters. So when I saw Claremont McKenna, um, an ex-boyfriend who plays kind of heavily into this, introduced me to the college, I saw that they had a really strong um, career networking system. And the other thing that they had was an institute called the Salvatore Center for the Study of Individual Freedom in the Modern World. And I am a huge founding fathers geek. I have been since I was five and like growing up in Boston and looking down the street and seeing John Adams's mansion, estate, whatever. And I just love the idea of all of these disparate people coming from across the country, not only throwing off the shackles of an oppressive government, but then also trying to figure out a way to create a government that protected certain rights, made everyone kind of happy. 
it prevented like some war from breaking out except for that one giant time in the <laughs> 1860s and that little thing that little thing and then when i saw that and saw that they were giving me a lot of money to go to this college i was like wait i get to pay not a lot of money to go to this really well regarded school that will give me a career in maybe studying the founding fathers oh my god yes i want to go there that would be fantastic and then from there the opportunities to develop a career by being involved in more institutes that ostensibly like study the founding fathers was better and better and better to the point that like you start getting i started getting invited to these galas and these dinners and these luncheons with really famous people like thinkers and politicians and um Literally, once I got invited to a black tie gala that was hosted at this fancy five-star hotel in Newport Beach, and then me and my little baby research assistants from Salvatore got invited to the VIP party, and we were just like drinking wine and smoking cigars with Andrew Breitbart and all of these like famous judges <laughs> um, and lawyers and politicos, and mm-hmm, I'm just mm-hmm. sitting here as a 19-year-old going like, oh my god, they could help me out with my career. And like, that was the point of us being in that room. So they could identify who was the smart, promising people. So I want to talk about that a little bit because I think a lot of people on the outside who aren't from the right, they don't understand the sort of incubator function, particularly that Claremont McKenna plays in producing a lot of the people who have become big voices on the right as, as time has gone on. Talk to us a little bit more about. I mean, well, you're, you're describing it, uh, you know, uh, the networking of, uh, of effects and all the and all the the sort of shaping events. But people don't really understand it, that it's well funded. It's well. It's it's rigorous. It's not. It's not just like learn how to write right wing Fox News Breitbart talking points. It's it's a much more rigorous idea that they've put forth over the years than than people think. Yeah. Honestly, this goes back to, and I'm sure you're well aware of how deep this goes back. Like in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, a group of pro-American right-wingers were like, oh my God, what are the Democrats doing with this great society bullshit? We need to stop Mm -hmm. it. We need to stop the federal government from having too much overreach into our lives. Okay, maybe let's do a little bit of like, quote unquote, states' rights in order to preserve a lot of our segregationist policies, but not too heavily. Uh, Let's purge the federal government of potential communist influence. And what we do is that we start creating networks and institutions where we train young leaders to assume positions of power eventually in the future, help them along the way, give them guidance, connect them with the right people who know how to run their offices, for instance, or defend them in court or I don't know, even like turn out votes in smaller elections where they're starting to be cultivated, like where where they start Mm -hmm. their careers out. Like here's how I explain it to people. You know how Mitch McConnell is really, really, really old, like 88 or something. Right. He started out in the like he started out in the leadership Institute, which is a real Mm -hmm. Institute in the 1960s. Are you a Believe leadership me, institute? I, I'm not an LI guy. I actually, I actually ducked out of doing LI because I went and did an internship at a at an intelligence agency instead. 
I was the, a choice of what I, I was going to do one or the other that year. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go do this spy thing instead. I've, it's been around the ecosystem that I grew up in, in politics my whole life. I mean, from the very dawn of time, you know, I got into politics in the late eighties, which I'm, I'm 60 years old. So that gives you sort of the context, but I want to talk to you about how you think the rise of Trump and nationalist populism has altered that climate and that world you grew up in. Cause it's in your, in reading it, it seems to me that that's where you sort of started looking for the exits as it became much more about nationalism, whether white nationalism or nationalist populism. I think that for my read, that's where you started saying, wait a minute. So the incubator program that I went through was literally a journalism program, which I believe may have been the uh, crack in the shield. This institution called the Institute of Humane Studies, kind of obliquely funded by the Koch brothers, sent out these internship applications to young journalists who wanted a paid internship in a newsroom in the summer of 2009, height of the recession. and. They were also specifically looking for liberty-minded students, which was the actual phrase that they used. And once you get the internship, you also have to go to these seminars that kind of talk about how great libertarian ideology is and isn't TARP bad, and why should the federal government be paying all this money for the Affordable Care Act? Like, shouldn't more journalists be highlighting that issue, you little baby journalists? (laughs) The interesting part, though, is that there were a lot of students who wanted to be journalists there as well, but then there were a whole bunch of, like, philosophers and wannabe speech writers, like, Mm -hmm. people who applied to the program didn't get the internship but seemed ideologically inclined to join that network. And the moment I finished this internship, I get an invitation from the head of that program, John Elliott, who was like, now, like you have been identified as a very promising person who will be part of the IHS mentorship program and I will be your mentor uh-huh. and you can rely on me to look over your resume, help you find job leads, tailor your cover letters, tell you exactly what to say to certain people. And like I was saying earlier, I just didn't know how careers worked in America. And so I was like, oh my God, yeah, mentor, that's awesome. Time goes on. He introduces me to the Daily Caller. That doesn't work out for a very long story. You worked for Tucker 1.0. Yeah, exactly. That was actually that was bizarrely kind of a fun time. Uh, but <laughs> if it, but like being at the Daily Caller was not the reason I left the right. It was that when I went back to this mentor asking for other leads, he kept sending me to places that seemed more and more like right wing funded hit job machines. And they were asking me to do these things that just seemed to go counter to my beliefs of what a journalist should and should not do. Like there was this one group that was like, we need you to go to academic conferences and write about how academia is super liberal, but you have to kind of hide in there because I can't go in there anymore because they blocked me. Um, There was this other one called the Franklin Institute and they wanted me to go to Madison, Wisconsin Mm -hmm to do muckraking about teachers' unions and how bad they were. This was 2011, if you... I was working for the Republican Party in Wisconsin at the time, I do recall. <laughs> yeah, um, their fight with the teachers' unions. And then the last one mm-hmm. that really like made me just go, screw this, I can't do this anymore, 
it was a freelance contract that he had set up for me with a group called the Colorado Observer. And the editor there had been asking me to write these stories about like trying to highlight certain hypocrisies that Democratic congressmen were displaying. And I started looking into it and I was like, wait, the Republican congressmen in Colorado are doing the same things too. Like, is in this context that we need to put in there? And he goes, no, it's because the Democrats are doing it and they get no scrutiny. Imagine if like Jared Polis was a Republican, what the Washington Post would be writing about him. And I'm like, this is, this seems wrong. Even, like I'm 22, 23 at this point, and it seems wrong. So I finally look into his background and I realize, wait, no, he used to be a Coke operative and the chief of staff for a, uh, let's call him somewhat white nationalist and totally likes giving speeches in front of Confederate flags kind of congressman. The moment I realized my mentor had dropped me at this guy's doorstep and was like, this is a good job. You should take it. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm torching my life. I'm going to move to New York. I'm, and then I, re- then I got a job as a food blogger. <laughs> <laughs> The right-wing media ecosystem, a lot of it appears in my head to be that. It's the, it's the endless hit job thing. It's the always, you know, liberals are evil and must be destroyed, and so we're going to find every single valence we can go after to, to whack them. And, and that's sort of like, and you mentioned Andrew Breitbart, which is, you know, Breitbart turned into essentially a machine that fed the Fox News ecosystem every day with whatever weird fantasy Matt Boyle or, or, or Steve Bannon wanted to pursue. So you go to New York, you become a food blogger, but you're seeing this right-wing media system just explode at the time though, right? It's just like, it's growing like, like crazy, everything from the examiner. And I separate out the, the, what I call the gentry conservative world of national right. review and the standard when it still was the standard, when it still existed, those were much more old school. But what you saw rising up was all this stuff that was, that was very immigration centric, very white nat. And so you go to become a food blogger to try to escape. Talk to us about the, the next couple of years. Um, the next couple of years, uh, I realized that food blogging is not what it's all cracked up to be. And it just sort of takes a terrible toll on your body. And I'll put it this way. The moment I found myself at some event, like vomiting foie gras onto 52nd street after like being plied with too much alcohol. Yeah, exactly. I was like, no, this is, (laughs) this is awful. I'm not doing this anymore. I end up going to Mediate because there is a open position there and my beat ends up being internet stuff. And just being on the internet all of the time makes me realize, oh wait. So all of these people that I saw who were not up to snuff of the gentry conservative publications, like you said, National Review, Weekly Standard, like they could get kicked out of there, but they haven't, their careers are not dead. Like they could be kicked out for being insufficiently conservative in the publication's view, but they can take their audience to a blog or just remain on Twitter and keep being in the public conscious. And there just seems to be no end to how far someone can go. Like there are no gatekeepers anymore. There are no barriers. There's no one who can individually say what is and is not conservative or like acceptable. Here's some real deep cut conservatism uh, warning listeners about this. Do you remember the John Birch Society? Of course. Yeah. I'm of uh, an age. I'm of an age. One of the things I kept 
wondering about when I was covering Trump was like, why is it that all of the conservative papers that I knew growing up that were serious and high minded, why are they not good at like getting these people out of the movement? And then I realized it was because they were print publications and those guys were internet trolls and like they could not shut those guys up. And William F. Buckley was like, he, he had a magazine that was like the biggest um, subscription base in the country, so influential. And he was willing to lose enough subscribers if it came to it. But like he worked his ass off to make sure the Birchers were not associated with his brand of conservatism and he could, and he could do it. Like they were fairly close to becoming one of the defining forces there. But like, I don't know if he could have done the same in this digital age. I really don't. Uh, I mean, uh, honestly, I think there will be people in this, in the political MAGA ecosystem, maybe not all who now would look at the Birchers as insufficiently crazy. Yeah, that's a, that's that's definitely true of QAnon. There's some stuff out there in like the whole QAnon space and the whole vaccine conspiracies. I mean, it, I guess it was always there, but how much did you see the conspiracy stuff starting to eat the internet or or eat the the the, the MAGA media or the the conservative media space? Yeah, e- even though when people like Boyle got busted, like for uh, the Cuban prostitute story that was fed to them by Cuban intelligence, not by you know, they they love a good greasy conspiracy. They love a good nasty you know idea that there's some powerful deep state always manipulating everything. It really like took off during the Trump years for sure. I don't think anyone in like Ted Cruz world they could nod to it. I don't think they would have ever gone as far as Trump did in like platforming them and retweeting them. And the moment that like then the leading GOP candidate, and then eventually the president starts mainstreaming these theories, they become policy, they become political positions. And like, that was the thing that I focused on most during my coverage, both at Vanity Fair and Politico, like, who has Trump legitimized? And how have they benefited from it? And it was sort of existent during the years of during like the early years pre COVID. But during COVID, when everyone was at home and going crazy and no one knew what was happening, it just took off. Like one of the stories I write about in the book is the way I discover the origins of the hydroxychloroquine. Right, 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 right. Talk to us about that. That's a great, that's a great hit. Oh man. So uh, everyone knows that moment that Trump got on stage and said, let's like, I've heard about the hydroxy. That's great. Most people could trace it back to this guy appearing on Tucker Carlson's show and Tucker like giving this man airtime and Trump like taking his cues from Tucker. But before that, this man just sort of existed and whipped this paper out of thin air. But then before that, he only learned what hydroxychloroquine was late February 2020 when this other guy just like brings it up in a Twitter thread that they're all having and James, um, Greg Gregano, I think that was his name, was like, can you tell me more about hydroxychloroquine? And this philosopher, this self-described philosopher starts sending him all these papers. And then he writes back, I'm coming out with a major paper tomorrow. Thank you for your help. And then someone starts <laughs> pretending to be the Stanford guy. And, right. Yeah. And the fact that it wasn't just some dude like 
playing doctor deliberately and trying to fool people, but like a man who had heard about a thing on the internet and legitimately believed it was good enough to apply his brand of like trying to save America to it. At that moment, I was like, this, <laughs> this chain, this chain of causality is not good. <laughs> not good this at is, all. This chain of causality really is not good. And the guys of like, and like the difference between I just want to see these ideas that even crazy people are thinking about and like, oh my God, they have turned into actual po- policy that will mean that people will die is such a turning point in my coverage that everything that I've thought about and worried about for the past, oh, since 2008 up through 2020, I was like, oh, okay, all of my knowledge is coming to fruition I don't like it, but here we go. I'm going to write about it. Like a lot of America, you had a big sort of a set of inflection points about how you're how, uh, during COVID because you saw the world change even more radically at that point. You've drifted at this point out of a lot of the far right stuff, and you are much more uh, a mediaite is much more center, uh, I would say, Politico, Vanity Fair. And now you're with Puck, which is sort of fun and insidery and snappy. And I, I love your work there. And I think. You feel like you're having more fun outside of the of the bubble than you you did the last few years in it. Oh my god, yes, I totally am. <laughs> I mean, here's the problem <laughs> I ran into in like the traditional big media outlets. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of responsibility to make sure that you present things in a pretty in like a very straightforward theories of the facts manner. But what I bring, the facts that I bring to my editors there are so like what the fuck? No, no, this is fringe shit that like, it prevents me, I think, from going a little further into understanding, to explaining the mindset of people who are now driving the conversation in Washington, possibly in the White House, definitely on the state level. Like, look, right now, we're facing a second government shutdown because 13 hardliners have been like, no, we don't want this budget. And Interestingly enough, going into the Mike Johnson speakership, the big concern was, oh, my God, what is this guy too MAGA? Is he too much of a hardliner? <laughs> and here's the thing. he I have always written that he's not MAGA. He's a conservative and definitely a hardliner, but like mm-hmm. a 2018 kind of hardliner who exists in theory and can be a hardliner in theory. But the moment it comes to practice, like he has to reconcile – being someone who is a leader with someone who had presented himself as a hardliner to begin with, I don't doubt that he holds those beliefs, but to the Freedom Caucus, they believe that he's trying to sell them bullshit as conservative and they don't, and they do not like it. Like at least with, um, at least with Kevin McCarthy, they, with Kevin McCarthy, I don't, they really didn't like him at all, but I don't, but like the majority of them did not want McCarthy out because they knew he was a transactional, heartless bastard who would screw them over occasionally. But like he wasn't going to betray them ideologically. Yeah, he's always yeah. for sale, but he wasn't going. But like they wouldn't treat him going against them as the ideological betrayal at Johnson's facing right now. He's backing off a little bit as today. We're recording this on the 11th of January, folks. He's backing off a little bit today, but. You know, the minute you throw blood in the water for the Chip Roy's and the Matt Gates's of the world, they're going to come out like sharks because 
and you you saw this all the time in your reporting, I think, on the right, that negative incentive structure of conflict, chaos, craziness, people in that media enterprise always seem, in my mind, to draw those as like lessons about conservative versus liberal. I mean, somebody more to the right that disagrees with a with a another conservative, that other conservative must be a traitor and a secret Soros plant and all the other crazy stuff. It strikes me like the the negative incentive structure that exists on the right. A lot of it is driven by the, by the 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 existence of this large MAGA press enterprise now that didn't exist ten years ago. Mm, absolutely. Uh, look, being outrageous on the internet definitely gets you more eyeballs and more attention. And certainly more profit if you leverage it a certain way. And I think a lot of like media outlets, like right wing media outlets these days are great at leveraging it. The subscription model and the streaming model has done bonkers for them. But the idea, but like going back to the idea of like being a trader, I also think that has something to do with that loyalty structure that the movement created in the first place. Like, here is my here is the grand theory I lay out in the book. It is that the conservative movement banded together in the 1950s and 60s with a shared goal of you know taking down communism, but the fact that they were getting people in from a young age meant that these like my formative years for certain were in right-wing groups. I made a lot of friends in right-wing groups. I have a lot of fond memories of being in the right and I, to this day, still find it really emotionally kind of hard to reconcile, like, being objective about this movement while also wondering if I'm objective about it, will they take it as criticism? Have I, like, shanked them seemingly for my own career or something? And if it's like that for me, I cannot imagine what it's like for, like, generations, generations of Republicans who've existed inside this movement that they love deeply, so deeply that they've committed their lives to it, that they've like made their livelihoods, their social circles, all of that. And they also did enter the movement under the assumption that there was a specific vision of conservatism that they all shared and that they were protecting for their voters. And then the moment the voters were like, actually, no, let's do a populism instead. Like the choice is either you stand up for your beliefs, but then lose your entire life, essentially, or you become sort of cynical and go with the flow. And even if you feel kind of like grody about it, you still have your life around you. It's not even, it's not a money thing. I really wish people understood that it wasn't a money thing and it wasn't a power thing. It can be for certain people, but deep, deep at the core is that. Yeah. I disagree a little bit in the consulting world. Mm. Where it really is a money thing, okay? Because every single one of my former colleagues who do didn't—I mean, there a handful of us left, but every single one of my former colleagues—and I, I say this, folks, one hundred percent of Washington D.C.-based Republican consultants who are not named Corey Lewandowski—they hate Donald Trump with the fire of a billion suns. They would do anything to have the past back, but they shut their mouths because they have a very good lifestyle. And, and, and I, but I think you're right though. There, the, the thing that bothered me in, in my departure from the right was, was not the money bothered me. I, I had a very good living in the past. I had an extremely good living, but what bothered me was I, you know, people that were in my wedding, people that were my friends for 30 years who are like, Hey man, you're great, but I can't ever speak to you again because if they find out I'll lose my job. 
but I, I think you saw you've seen some of that too. But so I want to I want to I want to wrap up. You close the book with an encounter with Tucker Carlson, who is, in my mind, even though he's he's in this sort of weird twilight zone now, he really was the like the the apex product of this system in a lot of ways. Wealthy, fairly nihilistic about it for a long time. Loved the spotlight, loved the game. So you run into him at at CPAC. Uh, tell us the story about how that how, how you wrap up the book. No, I independently called him for the book because I was like, all right, I'm writing about Tucker and my early encounters with him. Right. Um, I think it would be kind of foolish to not close the loop there. Weirdly, I am the journalist now and he is the like subject and the pundit and the uh, person in power. And he's always been really kind to me and interested in like what it is that I had to say and was actually genuinely super helpful in my career. Like he not only gave me a job recommendation for the next gig I took, even after he fired me, he literally gave me his cell phone number and was like, Hey, um, if your mom's mad that you lost your job, here's my cell. She can call me directly. But at the same time, when I decided to call him back and I wanted to ask him like informed questions about conservatism and the right instead of like what Ben Smith did recently, which was, are you a white nationalist? Which no one will ever answer yes to. Right. Who's going to say yes to that one? Exactly. Exactly. And so I'm just like, all right, like, what are your views on conservative journalism these days? And then he just breaks into this long, like rant about how journalism has completely failed Americans and how like, it's so insular and like tiny and they don't care about real issues, which is a thing that I definitely agree with. Uh, but then right. I start, I sure. think about like, oh, yeah. yeah, but like uh, for about 20% of it or something, it was just him ranting about specific people in the media that he disliked, like, <laughs> and like people in Washington too. And I'm just thinking like, okay. Um, a lot of this is personal as well. That's very interesting. Cool. Mm-hmm. Like his nicknames for them were just so withering. Like I think he called, <laughs> I think he called Ben Smith a reptile creature. He's oh very funny. God, Tucker, Tucker has not lost his ability to craft a withering sentence. Sure. Oh no, no. Listen, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by his evolution and, and sort of the dependence of a lot of the populist guys now on Tucker and Tucker esque sort of approaches as, as they, and again, as you pointed out, there was this assumption from people, my generation, particularly that we were going to be about limited government, the constitution, the rule of law, strong foreign policy, the big picture stuff. And the shock of, of Trump for a lot of people in, in my generation and the one right after it politically was like, Wait, all this stuff that they, they, you you don't believe in unlimited government. You guys don't believe in the Constitution. You'll do whatever the guy wants, and that sense of, of of branching off between the conservative movement and whatever I'm in is, um, I think that's a really that's a challenge for journalists going forward because I think it's still easy for them to put the old Republican Democrat frame over the populist party that exists on the on the on the Republican side now. They still sort of a lot of journalists still look at it as, oh, well, this is the same old argument we were having in the 90s or the 2000s. It's really not. It's really fundamentally changed. Mm -mm. 
man, you want to know something really hilarious about the speaker like mess right now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, I went on Speaker Johnson's website. It's still kind of under construction, but one of the first things he puts on the top is like seven core principles of conservatism. And he lists this um, thing that he wrote in 2018 about the principles that Republicans should try to emulate in their lawmaking process. And uh, the one about free markets included, we should support free trade. And I'm just like, (laughs) sir, good luck. This This is 2024. When was right. <laughs> when did we have free trade? Any Let's free get, trade advocates yeah, in the Republican yeah, that, Party? Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's um, <laughs> yeah, try pushing. Let's try pushing that today. Yeah, see how that works out for you. Well, Tina, thank you so much for coming on the Enemies List today. I really appreciate it, and I wish you all the best with the book, uh, folks. The book is the MAGA Diaries: My Surreal Adventures Inside the Right Wing and How I Got Out. Uh, it is available on the 16th, uh, which is next week. It'll probably be the week this podcast airs. Uh, Tina Wynn, thank you so much again for joining me today, and I, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Always a pleasure, Rick. Folks, i got to give CNN a little bit of a ding today. They hosted the last debate of the Republican primary of 2024 uh, last night. It was Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. I get it that they were asking serious well-formed, well-thought-out questions about policy and comparisons between the two candidates, but it took over an hour to get into the fact that Donald Trump dominates this campaign environment at a level that makes all of this look like a kabuki dance. I, I, I wish they had had a moment where they punched harder over and over again because both DeSantis and Haley had a bunch of preformed answers that that continue to try to evade and avoid answering real questions about Donald Trump's criminality, about his corruption, about his conspiracies, about his insanity. And neither one of them was held to account on that stage about the fact that no matter what they say today about their, I'm the best candidate, both Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis the moment they're out of the primary, will crawl over broken glass to kiss Donald Trump's ass. They will they will abase themselves and humiliate themselves like, like nothing you have ever seen before. All will be forgotten. Nikki will say, oh my God, I just woke up. It was a terrible dream. Ron will say, the greatest president of my lifetime. I will do everything for him. Neither one of them is honest about what they're doing here. And the press had a moment where they could have held them to account. But they're asking questions about climate change and every other thing under the sun, which in a normal world would be the right journalistic approach. It really, really would. But when you've got Donald Trump over on Fox having his balls polished by whatever robo-monkeys Fox put out there that night, uncritical of anything, and the alternative that the normies are all supposed to be watching is, is a series of questions between two candidates who cannot win, but who are who are hypothetically the Republican opposition to Donald Trump, and we don't ever get to Donald Trump till well into the discussion. We and and even then it was sort of tangential and and superficial, and neither one of them was held to account enough to say that they will not vote for Donald Trump if he's a felon or and so on. This whole thing is is a, I think, a dereliction. 
And I think it was something that if I were the producers at CNN, I would have rethought how I approached it. But right now we've got a problem in journalism in this country. And that problem is that too many people are still treating this like a normal campaign and not like an existential moment, a life or death question of whether America survives or we elect Donald Trump again. That's, as Jay Rosen says, it is not about the odds. It is about the stakes. And I think last night we missed getting the stakes on the CNN last debate with uh, DeSantis and Haley. That's the enemies list this week, folks. I'll be back with more next time. Thanks again for listening to the enemies list. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah but you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.